Good morning, great men and women of God. I'm glad that you're here with us today. We're going to be diving into a book called Third John. And I encourage you, uh, if you have brought a Bible with you, you can go to the very last page. That's going to be the book of Revelation, or it's going to be a bunch of maps. But go past that to the left, past Revelation, you'll hit Jude, and then you'll hit Third John. So we're going to be there today. You can also download it. There's a link in our bulletin to where you can download a copy of the Bible if you want to have one for yourself to read. And uh, in my Bible, it's page 303, if that helps you to find out where it is. So thinking about this book, I, I wanted to just make a statement, and it's this. Sometimes we forget the story that we're living. I think this is something that's been happening to me over the last three or four years as I've kind of looked at this story called Christianity that's being uh, told in our public sphere, and and I, I, I find myself very much at odds often with the story that's being told and the story that I want to live and the story I want to hold to. And I've been very frustrated the last few years. In fact, I, I, I'm not at all ashamed to, to tell anyone that I actually believe that Jesus Christ was God and that he died on a cross and he rose again. I'm not ashamed of that. I am ashamed sometimes to tell people that I'm a Christian because of the associations. In fact, over the last year, I've kind of even changed some language. I've stopped referring to myself as a Christian and just started calling myself a Christ follower. There's less baggage with that. And, and I found myself living in this story where, where things are, 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 that are valued that I don't value and things that are not valued that I do value. And it just, I feel very at odds with some of the ways that we're talking about this story about Christ. And last year I started following someone who was saying some things I thought needed to be said. He was speaking up and he was speaking out against the status quo. He was a Christ follower, but was standing up and saying, hey, some of these things that we're seeing in our culture aren't right. And I thought, yes, finally, someone is saying this stuff. I'm angry. He's angry. We're angry together at the way that it is, and things ought to change. And I admired him for this, and I, I thought, I want to be more like that in my life. I need to step up and call it out. And so I began trying to imitate him, and I was imitating not just what he was saying, but I was trying to imitate some of the ways and the hows of what he was saying. My hope was that it would spark some change. And instead, I feel like it just sparked a lot of conflict. And that drained me. And I started thinking, I don't want to live that story either. And conflict is, is not a bad thing necessarily, and sometimes we need conflict as a means to change if that's the story God's called you to live. But about a month ago, I, I came across a quotation I had forgotten, and when I read it again, I thought, yes, this is it. It's a quotation from a book by a guy named Dostoevsky. And the quotation is derived from one of the characters' speech, and it's a simple four-word statement, and it's this. There are five words. Beauty will save the world. When I came across that again, I thought, that, that's, that's my story. That's the story I want. Beauty that can seize the human heart and call us to a bigger story. For me, the beauty that will save the world is the love of God. And the story I want to live is to unveil that beauty. I want to clean the grime off the window so that everyone can see the sunrise of the resurrection and, and this true beauty of all that this is. I'd rather light a candle than curse the darkness. And I really resonated with something Bob Goff said. He said, I think God sends his messengers out to tell everybody there's plenty of room. 
and there's free food, and there's conversation and adventure and a wonderful and generous host who has invited us by name. And when I heard this quote and when I read that by Bob Goff, there's something in me that goes, yeah, yeah, that's the story I wanted to live. Now, that might not be your story, but it's mine. And I had forgotten that because sometimes we forget the story that we're living. Let me ask you this. What, what story would you say that you're living today? What's the story that you're living out as you get up and you go to school and you go to work and you go to home and, and you go to places? What's the story that you're living? And secondly, what story do you want to live? Because here's what I want to encourage you with today. You have a choice. You don't have to live the story that you're living. You can live a bigger story. And what we're doing this month in April is we are looking at some letters written by people in the first few decades after Jesus Christ rose from the dead. This event of called the resurrection was so transformative, was so amazing. What happened is it's like it pulled back the curtain on that window. And for the first time, we thought, I thought life was just about this little story, trying to be a good person, do what's right. And all of a sudden, you're showing me this grand story called the restoration of all things. And it started with a resurrection. And so what we're looking at are some letters because in the first few decades, people are still trying to figure out, well, how does that look in my life? How does that look in my relationships? How does that look when I go to work? Should I even go to work? I mean, he's going to fix everything. I mean, there's lots of questions. And so guys back then were writing letters to each other saying, hey, here's what God is saying about that. And we're looking at some of those. And today we're going to look at a letter written by John. We looked at 2 John last week. It was such a popular letter. It came out with a sequel to it. It's called 3 John. Uh, the actual original language was Third uh, John, the search for Curly's gold. Just kind of a weird deal. That was the original name. But he changed it for the Bible, and now we just call it Third John. In this letter, he's going to call us to begin exchanging our smaller story for a bigger one. Now, <clears throat> I thought I'd do this this morning. It's such a short book of the Bible. In fact, it, it doesn't even fill up a whole page in my Bible. It's like, Third John is at the top, and then Jude jumps in. And so it's such a short book. I just want to read this letter out loud to us, and then we'll go back and unpack something. And as we do, I thought I'd give you just a little tip of something that I do. When I am reading a part of the Bible, and I'm trying to understand, you know, what is God saying to me? I, I have three questions I kind of work through. First, I wonder, is there a hope to hold on to? Is there some kind of hope that, oh, okay, that's something that I can hold on to, and that's something that's going to encourage me? Is there a promise to be believed? Is there something where God is saying, by faith, I want you to believe this and have it be true? Or is there a command to consider? Is someone telling someone something to do, and what does God say to me? So have that as a little bit of background. I'm just going to read this letter out loud and see if you pick up any of those cues. So remember, this is a letter written by John, and he's writing to a man named Gaius. So John's going to call himself the elder, as we saw last week. Here we go. The elder... To beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray all is going well with you, that you're as every bit as healthy physically as you are spiritually. I was absolutely delighted, you see, when some of the family arrived. Now, family is code word for other Christ followers. Some of the family arrived and bore witness to your truthfulness, since clearly you are walking in truth, and nothing gives me greater joy than this to know that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, when you are doing all that you do for family members, even when they are strangers, you are doing a faithful work. These people have borne witness to your love in the presence of the assembly 
and you would do well to send them on their way in a way, in a manner worthy of God. They went out for the sake of the name, not accepting help from outsiders. We ought to support people like that so that we may become fellow workers with the truth. Then he takes kind of a turn in his letter. So it's been very positive up till now, but then John has some hard things to say. He says, I've written something to the assembly, but Diotrephes, who wants to be the most important person there, refuses to acknowledge us. So then if I come, I will refer back to what he's done and the slanderous words he's spoken against us. Not being satisfied with that, he doesn't welcome family members himself. And when others want to do so, he forbids them and throws them out of the assembly. Beloved, don't imitate evil, imitate good. Someone who does good is from God. Someone who does evil has not seen God. And then he throws out just another name as he closes. He says, Demetrius, he has been well attested by everybody and by the truth itself. We join in this testimony. You know that our testimony is true. I have much more to write to you, but I don't want to do it with pen and ink. I'm hoping instead to see you very soon. We can talk face to face. Peace be with you. All the friends greet you. Greet all the friends by name. Now, as I read through that letter there, I don't, I'm looking at these kind of three statements, I, I did see a command to consider. I saw really just one command found in verse 11, and it's this. Beloved, don't imitate evil, but what? What does he say? Imitate good. John is calling Gaius, and, and by extension, all that would read this letter, because this would be a letter that Gaius would take, and he'd receive it on behalf of the church, and he'd make copies and pass it around to people. So he's talking to guys, he's talking to us, and he's saying, imitate the good, not the bad. Live the bigger story. Now, at first, this feels very generic. Uh, okay, um, hey, beloved, don't do bad things, do good things. Okay, great, thanks a lot, great, great sermon. But when you read the context, you realize this is not very generic at all. John has given us crystal clear examples of what he means when he said this is good and this is bad, and he gave it in the form of two people. The good is Gaius who's living the bigger story. The evil is Diotrephes, living for his own story. These are the two contrasts. Now, I spent several days this week practicing how to say these guys' names, and so I want you to say them with me just because it's kind of fun and that'd be the one thing that you learned today. It's Gaius, say that, Gaius and Diotrephes. Diotrephes, okay, good, that was cool. And then John, see, okay, that was an easy one. His command is, Beloved, imitate what is good like Gaius. Don't imitate what is bad like Diotrephes. Find somebody you're going to follow, but be careful that they're not living the wrong story. Gaius is living the right story. Diotrephes is not. Now, why, what, what makes these two, what, what makes one good and one evil? What's he talking about? Well, let's play these out. So back in verse 3, John is bragging on Gaius. Man, you're my beloved. You're my pal. You're doing a great job. And he says this. Clearly, you are walking in the truth. Nothing gives me greater joy than this than to hear my children are walking in the truth. Now, if you were here last week, one of the things that we learned about the John's truth grid, we said we all, we all have a grid through which we process truth. For John, his grid was Jesus Christ. And actually for John, truth was not a principle. Truth was a person. And the reason for that is because John would look at us and say, I was there. I was there when Jesus said, I am the truth. I was there when truth walked around. I was there when truth wept in a garden. I was there when truth died on a cross. I was there when truth rose again. I was there. 
So his grid reads through Jesus Christ. That's how he evaluates truth. And we said that one thing you can kind of do when John's writings is anytime you see the word truth, you could just put the word Jesus there instead, and it doesn't really change the meaning. kind of amplifies it for us. So here's what he's saying. Gaius, Gaius, clearly you are walking in Jesus. And you're my child in the faith. In a sense, it's like you're the son. Gaius must have come to Christ through John's work. And so John's like, you're like my son in the faith and you are walking in Christ. Now, what evidence evidence does Gaius give to us that he is a man walking in Christ? Well, verse five. John points out specifically what he's doing. Gaius, in doing all that you're doing for family members, even when they're strangers, you are doing a faithful work. John is actually referring to something we talked about last week, that Gaius is opening his home to welcome people who are traveling from town to town to tell the story of Jesus Christ. If you remember back then, the hotels were a pretty dicey proposition, and so there were these people who said, well, listen, this story of Jesus is too good for us to hold. We have been sent out by him to tell everybody everywhere and alert them to the reign of God. The fact that Jesus is alive, we've got to go tell people that. And so they would come to a town, and they didn't want to stay at the hotel, they didn't want to stay at an inn, and so they would look for somebody that was a, a follower of Christ. Hey, I heard that you follow Christ. I do too. Could we stay the night? Would you put us up, feed us, give us a place to stay? Gaius is doing this. He's opening his home to others. He is supporting the work of, go- of the gospel, not just, Paul, uh, John says, to brothers and sisters, but to even people he doesn't even know. Someone would knock on his door, Gaius, you don't know me, but my cousin's friend's barber knows you, and I'm a Christ follower too. Gaius, okay, come on in. In this way, he's a fellow worker with the truth. This is the good, John says, we are to imitate. This way of living that's for the sake of the name. It's finding whatever God story, what story God has given you to tell and playing that part. For some, it meant leaving their home to travel to a new town and tell people this truth. For others, it meant staying at home and opening your doors and saying, well, welcome and come in. For others, it meant writing a letter that would be sent out and spread to many people. Different gifts, different talents, all one story. And they each had a unique way to tell it. And when you live for the sake of the name, you live for the bigger story. That's the positive. John says, be like this. This is the bigger story to live. But... On the other hand, there's an evil, a man named Diotrephes. Now, there's not a lot of verses here, but we actually see a lot about this guy. Diotrephes was a man who refused to welcome people. Verse 10, he doesn't welcome family members himself, and when others want to do so, he forbids them and throws them out of the assembly. For Diotrephes, this story was not for everyone. Life was about gatekeeping the circle, deciding who got to get in and who didn't get to get in. Who was worthy of being welcomed, who's not? He had his own criteria for that. He was like the first bouncer for church. That was his job. He also refused to listen. Did you see in verse 9, John said, hey, I've actually written a letter to this assembly before, but when it got there, Diotrephes refused to read it. Now, we don't know who Diotrephes is. I, he, he might be a leader in the church, like an elder or maybe a pastor. Um, maybe he just has a lot of money, and when he says things, people listen to him. But for whatever reason, this letter comes from John. We don't even have that letter today. Where is it? It's gone. Diotrephes is like, I don't need to listen to this. He had already decided what story he was going to live. Why the heck would he listen to someone like John who's just going to tell him stuff he didn't agree with? 
But I think if we were to capture Diotrephes, we would say this. Diotrephes is a guy who just, he refused to give it away. He wanted to control. Control who was in, who was out. Control who was welcomed, who was not. Control who was listened to, who was not. What's the evidence of his control? John says it in verse 10. He goes, this guy has not only refused to read our letter, but he's, he's spreading slanderous words about me. Diotrephes is going around the church saying, listen, John, don't trust him. Why? Because he wants everyone to trust him. And he feels if people start following this guy, John, maybe they won't follow him as much. And it's about a control issue. Now, this doesn't sound like a guy who's letting the story of the resurrection run his life. It doesn't sound like a guy who says the biggest story I've got to tell is about Jesus Christ. But John says the reason that he's acting like this, this is very telling. And I don't know how John knows this. He says that Diotrephes is living a smaller story, one where he wants to be the most important person there. Ah. In other words, Diotrephes didn't want to live the bigger story. He wanted to live his story. The story of his preferences. The story of his interpretations. The story of his expectations. The story of his rules. The stories of how he thought Christ following should be and what church should look like. These were his stories. And in those stories, he was the most important person. So what John is doing here is he's saying, look, I want to give you two paths. I want to give you two stories to tell. A story of Gaius who's walking in the truth for the sake of the name and a story of Diotrephes who wanted to be the most important person there for the sake of his name. And in this letter, what he's giving us is a choice. Which story will you live? This is our choice. We choose the story that we live. We can live a smaller story that's just about our name, or we can step into a bigger story that's about his name. Again, this is that choice posed to us in verse 11. Beloved, don't imitate evil, imitate good. Now, it's kind, of, it's kind of simplistic to look at this and go, well, yeah, of course I would imitate. Uh, how many people want to imitate evil? No one. How many people want to imitate good? All of us. Okay. But I've been around Christians long enough. I bet there were people in this church that really liked Diotrephes. They followed him. They imitated him. I mean, Diotrephes was confident. He was clear. He kicked out those people, and he let our people in. He cared about right and wrong. Clearly, he was ready to do something about it. He scored 100% on every theological exam. Of course, he also wrote the exams and refused to let any questions come in from other points of view like John. And sadly, guys like that always attract imitators. John says, but is that the story that you want to live? A story that begins and ends with you? A story where you're the most important character? The smaller story? Or would you like to live this bigger story? A story where people around you bear witness to your truthfulness and witness to your love. A story where you're clearly walking in the truth. A story where you are doing a faithful work. A story where you maybe don't have your name in lights, but you are playing a part in being a fellow worker of the truth. And he says, if you want to imitate the smaller story, imitate Diotrephes. But if you want a bigger story, imitate Gaius. Here's kind of the principle I'm working with here. The story you live 
follows from the people you imitate. The story that you're going to live will follow from the people that you imitate. So who are they? What does it look like to imitate someone? I want to reflect on that in a moment with you, but first I want to give you a moment to reflect with God. And what I'm going to ask is this question, who is living the bigger story that you want to live? Do you think about some of the people, uh, it's easy to look at some of the negatives, the diatrophies that are out there, okay, but we're going to set them aside for a second. We're going to say, who are the Gaiuses that you see around? Maybe it's someone in this room. Maybe it's someone that you watch. Maybe it's someone that you work with. Who are these people that you say, you know, the way this guy loves, the way this woman gives, Lord, that's, that's the story I want to be true for my life. I want to give you a moment to kind of reflect with God on this, and I'm praying that he's actually going to show you some names or faces. And then I'll come back and see how we might live this out here in our assembly. One of the things that catches me about this letter is coming to this realization that Gaius and Diotrephes went to the same church. That there was a moment where Gaius stands up and says, hey, I, I got a letter from John. Let me read this real quick. Diotrephes, you right over there? Okay, yeah, oh, he mentions you. Yeah, super awkward. We probably all have a story of a Diotrephes that we ran into in some Christian group, right? And that's why we're no longer a part of that group. Maybe they were a, a teacher or a pastor at a church. Maybe they were, uh, she was a group leader or volunteered with your kids. And you encountered this diatrophies and you said, if that's the way that this story goes, I don't want anything to do with it. Some of you might, this might be one of your first times back in church in a long time because you've had an unbroken string of diatrophies in your life. And you thought, that's not the story I want to live anymore. I mentioned that the last couple years have been frustrating for me from Christianity's standpoint, Christ's standpoint. Um, the last month has been really frustrating with me. It's hard when, um, it's hard when one of your heroes really let you down. And there's a hero of mine that has really been phenomenally uh, instrumental in shaping my life, even though we've never met. Now, I did stand next to this man in a urinal one time. That's as close as I ever came. 
but I did not take that moment to introduce myself. So it came out about a month ago that Bill Hybels had resigned from his church. Now, I want you to hear, some of you may not, that name doesn't mean anything to you. To me, it meant everything. Um, When I was about 19 years old, I heard Bill Hybels speak. He was a pastor of this church. And he had a statement that he made. And the statement that he made changed my life. And the statement was this. He said, I believe that the local church is the hope of the world. And when he said that, something in my heart said, I'm going to sell my life to that statement. I've been trying to do that ever since. And I, I followed Bill, and I, I appreciated his teachings, his writings. I, 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 loved how he, uh, I, I loved how he spoke. I loved this heart that he had to always be thinking about people that were outside. How can we help people come to know Christ? I, I, I kind of embarrassed a little bit about this, but when I was, real, when I was uh, trying to learn how to do some things, I used to get these cassette tapes. Um, do you guys know what a cassette tape is? How many of you know this? And you put a pencil in it when it, you need to turn it. And, okay. Cassette tapes, uh, that, they would have these tapes of his sermons, and I would listen to them, and I'd pause it and rewind it and play it again, and then I'd practice saying what he, I was learning how to preach by trying to imitate him. I'd always have to change the illustration from Lynn to Jessica to make that work better. But I really follow this guy. And, and these allegations have come out that have led to his resigning. And the allegations are that perhaps some of the ways that he has treated staff and treated women on his staff sound like diatrophies, making it all like he's the most important. I don't know fully all the allegations that might be true or not, but one thing that's been particularly hard for me is that uh, Bill Hybels has always been a champion that I have looked to on ways to elevate the voice of women in leadership. I thought, oh, and I've been scared that now that he resigned, people are going to be like, oh, see, and it would hurt that. And so it's been real hard to, to have him here, and I don't know all that's going on there, but it just, it just hurts because part of me is like, well, gosh, I mean, if Bill Hybels is going to, what's the point? Whoever makes it. And I think John, in this letter, would be the first to acknowledge, look, I want to acknowledge there are diatrophies out there, but there are also lives worth following. There are the Gaiuses out there. Hey, don't imitate the bad. Don't let that drive your life. Don't let that wreck you. Don't forget, though, that there are Gaiuses out there that are living lives worthy, that are following the bigger story. Like I said, I don't, know, I don't know all the truth in the situation, but what, what, what has helped me so much has been this book of 3 John, going back and going, yes, who are those people that I see that when I imitate them, it gives life to my soul? How do you find these folks? Yesterday, 10 a.m. in this room, we had a service to celebrate and remember Mel Leader, longtime, 42-year member of this church, 87 years old, for 70 years of his life, he was living for the sake of the name, this bigger story. Person after person got up and shared the impact that Mel had made. His sons were up there, his daughter-in-law, friends. Mel was a very encouraging man. He's always in God's word. He was always welcoming people into his home. Uh, One man, I think Ken shared that uh, Mel had this kind of spiritual radar that he'd go and he'd eat at Black Eyed Pea. And within 15 minutes, he would know the spiritual status of his waiter or waitress. And he'd start talking to them. And if they were following Christ, he would say, hey, and he'd give them some gentle encouragement on ways they could do that. And if they weren't following Christ, he'd give them some gentle encouragement on ways they could start. 
He's always pointing people towards the bigger story. One of the last times I actually visited with Mel, uh, he said, oh, I'm so excited to see you. And, and I was there, and I was like, okay, how can I care for Mel? And Mel said, I, I want to tell you what I'm learning in God's word. And he read some verse to me, and he said, Thomas, what does that even mean? How would I apply that in my life? And I'm thinking, well, Mel, you're 87 years old. <laughs> if you haven't figured that out by now, why, why are you asking me? Like how? And what I realized was, here's a man at 87 years old says, I ain't done being amazed at what God is saying, and I'm going to continue to wrestle with how to apply this in my life. That was Mel. I think if John were writing 3 John today, to me, he would say, imitate Mel. That's what's good. His love for people, his pointing people to Jesus, his wonder at God's word. Mel is on my short list. And a lot of times I, I know that when you have situations like I've described, you go, you know, I just don't want to follow anybody but Jesus, anybody but Jesus. That sounds great. Don't do that. That's really bad. Because one of the greatest gifts that Jesus Christ gave us was other people. Real life people with real life problems that are still leaning in and inspiring us and illustrating the wonderful ways that we can live a bigger story. Remember that Paul said this, be imitators of me as I am imitating Christ. Look at the ways I'm trying to live this out. And that's what we have when we have other people in our lives. We can see in each other the glimpses of the beauty that will save the world. So I ask again, Who's on your list? Whose story are you saying, these are the people I want to follow? Your short list, it can't be 5,000 people. It's like five people, 10 people. Who's your short list of people you follow that are following Christ? Who are the men and the women that you say, they're living the bigger story? I'm not gonna lose heart because there's people out there. Now, you might ask this question, where in the world would I find people like that? I am so glad you asked that question because I wanna give you a great gift in a couple of Sundays, I'm going to step off for the summer, and I'm going to take a sabbatical. And I, I'm so thankful and, uh, and grateful for the chance to lean out of leading for a little bit. Here's my gift to you. Lean in. Lean in for this summer. Lean in for this season into the people that are in this place, in this assembly. Because Pulpit Rock is not a church. It's not a building. It's a gathering of people who are living the bigger story. And there are a list of people in this room and in the service before that I want to imitate. And these are the people that give me hope when I get discouraged. Yes, there is a beauty that's going to save the world, and it looks just like that. Let me tell you about some of these people. It looks like people like Nikki and Pam and Denise and some others from our church who go to UCCS and do this ministry called Ask a Mom. They go onto campus, they set up a table, it says Ask a Mom, and they just sit there. And guess what happens? People come and they want to ask a mom. College students want to ask a mom things. We actually tried to do an Ask a Dad program, but the dad just kept telling students, well, go ask the moms. <laughs> So we stuck with Ask a Mom, but they're, they're at these tables, and they're using this awesome gift. What is their talent? It is the talent called momness, and they're using their momness powers to live a bigger story. And they sit there, and people come up to them, and they ask things. Like, here's some of their stories. An ex-military dental student dad came up to him saying, look, I'm, on, I'm here on GI Bills. we got family, got kids, uh, student loans. I, would you pray for me? Could I ask a mom to pray? gal was getting ready to graduate. She was going to become a ballet dancer, and she found out she was not accepted at the dance troupe that she wanted, and she just needed to ask a mom. 
So these moms had a, a contest. This is kind of funny. They did a, like this drawing contest sweepstakes thing and prize. The grand prize was dinner with mom for you and three of your friends. So this guy wins, and he came, and he was so great. He was like, hey, could I ask a mom? Could I, could I make a request? Could, could I have homemade mashed potatoes? And what do you think moms said? Oh, yeah. And here they are. Here they are having a meal. Here they're all eating. Look at homemade mashed potatoes on those plates. Three moms, two dads, four students, all because for the sake of the name, some moms said, we're going to go listen well. That's going to be our superpower. And they're living a bigger story. I want to imitate them. I want to imitate, I want to imitate people like Charlie and Jody Pine. You may know this couple. They are a great couple. They have made an investment in Muslims in Colorado Springs. They want to be friends with Muslims. They want to host Muslim people come over to their house and, and have conversations. And they host meals. And this isn't like some kind of one-way thing. They just, we just want to be friends. We want to talk about important things and see where this goes. And I don't know if you noticed this, but the Sunday before Easter, we had a group of Muslim women that came to our church at Pulpit Rock. Can you believe that? Has anything like that ever happened? That's a crazy thing to happen. I was so honored for them to be there. I went out and I met them and Charlie's like, hey, we'd like to introduce them to the pastor. And I was like, oh, well, now I feel real awkward and nervous. And I didn't know what to say. And so I said, I'm so glad that you guys are here. Um, You're welcome to be here. I'd love to offer you some coffee. Uh, Oh, you guys don't drink coffee, right? And Charlie's like, I think you're thinking of Mormons. It's like, oh, <laughs> yes, you, you drink coffee, yes. And then I felt like I'd blown it, and God's like, well, uh, great job. <laughs> but Charlie is so gracious to me. He's like, hey, that's okay. We get past the awkwardness. That's the whole point of sitting at the table with people. This is how Charlie and Jody live. They build bridges with people because they're there to listen. There's another couple here that I, I want to imitate. I'm not going to say their names, but the, the wife became a realtor recently because they said, you know, if, if we could have some more income, we could give away and support some more things for the kingdom. And they have a wall where they have pictures and postcards of different things that they're supporting. And every time a house is sold, there's another chance to invest in something. This is what Paul said. You are fellow workers, oh, sorry, John, fellow workers with the truth. And I know so many of you do this. I know so many of you say, uh, hey, uh, like with our care portal thing, I've, we've had women who have said and men who have said, um, I, I can't go be a part of that care portal thing, but could I just give some cash to this? That's what I have to give today. Great. Some of you are so generous, and I want to imitate that. And I think, why am I so stingy all the time? Why do I, I'm always afraid of where this is going to go. And then I read, People like you, and I read people like Gaius in verse 8. We ought to support people so we can become fellow workers with the truth. You know, verse 8 is so powerful to us because it reminds us that everything we do for the kingdom counts. Everything. Gaius had resources. That's what he brought to the table, so that's what he gave away. Hey, I don't have a lot. I got a home. I got a couch. I got a meal. That's what I'm giving for the kingdom. I think Gaius realized that in the kingdom to come, God's going to open his home. So Gaius is like, well, I'm going to open mine and show people what it's like. What do you bring that's unique to the story? Maybe it is money. Maybe it's time. Maybe it's expertise. Maybe you've been through a pain in life that you can serve others this way, but you bring something unique to the story. And this is what it means to live as part of the resurrection. If Christ died and he really rose again and his body really rose again and yet it was transformed and redeemed, then everything we do, all of our labor, is going to get transformed and redeemed someday carried over from this world to the world to come, even in ways we don't completely understand. It all counts. So what do you bring into the table? 
Let me, let me close with this. I've, I've gone on longer than the actual book is, so I'll wrap up with this. Look, Pulp Rock is not a perfect place. I'd like to say, oh, it's a place full of Gaiuses, but there's probably a few diatrophies here. I'd love to say, oh, I'm like Gaius, but I'm probably a lot more like diatrophies. The key is not to find the perfect place. It's to find the good that you can imitate. And while we may not be perfect here, I'll tell you one secret of Pulp Rock. It's our secret power. You want to know what it is? We're all sent out. Every person here is sent out. Some churches will champion a few people, or maybe they'll champion the pastor, and that's the most important person, or maybe they'll champion a missionary. Oh, they're on the front lines doing it all. We don't believe that. We believe that's wrong because we're all sent out. We all play a part. We all get to tell the story in unique ways. We're all fellow workers. Not everybody gets top billing, but it's not about that. So this summer, my gift to you is lean in, meet someone, get connected, go to a first table in two weeks, join a second table in May, roll up your sleeves and jump into sports camp with us, do something where you're beginning to get around these people, because I'm telling you, there's a whole nest of Gaiuses that are here. I don't even have time to tell all the stories, but I think about people like Roland and Kitty who are showing me what it looks like to open your home, not for a meal, but for a life. Or parents like Mark and Beth and David and Brenda who are showing me what to imitate when I'm wondering, um, do I stop giving grace to my kids? And they say no. Or there are men here with hearts like Ken and Bob, hearts that care for people well, and they're showing me what it looks like to truly shepherd someone. There are people of prayer here like Pam. There are hearts that are, that are so pure PRC has these people. And if you want to join the bigger story, imitate not just what is good, but who is good. People like Gaius and Mel, Nikki and Charlie and Jody. People who want to live a bigger story for the sake of the name. But you can't imitate from a distance. And if you've been discouraged by the spate of diatrophies that you feel in your life, you've seen, oh man, all these people have failed me. I want to just encourage you today. There's a lot of Gaiuses too. You can live that bigger story. But it comes to this question, whose story are you imitating? Do you have a list like that? If not, this summer, find some people to be your heroes that are living for the sake of the name. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I want to thank you again for your death and resurrection, for the way that you modeled how to treat people, how to speak. But today, I want to thank you for the gift you've given us of people, other people, flawed, imperfect, going to let us down, but people whose hearts say, I want to live a bigger story, and I want to keep following Jesus, and people that we can look to and learn from, and we can imitate. This morning, I pray that you would put some names or faces in our minds of people that need to be on our list that we could begin to spend some time with or pursue or observe and find out how they're living that story. And God, if no one comes to mind, I pray you'd open some doors for us to lean in this summer at Pulpit Rock and find how we can get into those relationships and meet those people. For the sake of the name, we want to live the story.